Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On the show today. We've reached a historic moment in this election. The 46th president of the United States will be Joseph R. Biden. Tonight, the whole world is watching America. And I believe at our best, America is a beacon for the globe. What does the world make of America's choice? Three former top officials from around the globe will join me. Ex-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd of Australia, former Deputy Prime Minister Zippy Livni of Israel, and former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, David Miliband. Also, why is America still so very polarized? Ezra Klein wrote the book on it. He will explain what the election has taught him. But first, here's my take. Joe Biden's first speech as president-elect demonstrated to the world that he may be the man for this moment. Decent, generous, and determined to reach out to his political opponents. But while many will celebrate this restoration of dignity and normalcy to American politics, let us bear in mind that the United States has gone through one of its most trying periods in history, one that is not done yet. The country was on the verge of becoming an illiberal democracy. I first wrote about illiberal democracy 23 years ago, when I saw countries in which elections were being held, popular participation was real, but where those leaders who had won would then try to use their power to attack the rule of law, minority rights, freedom of the press, and other institutions, procedures, and norms that made up the inner stuffing of constitutional government. I wrote about this growing danger because I was observing it in countries like Belarus, Russia, and the Philippines. But President Trump took America down that dark path and continues to push it in that direction even now. Think about this election. Over 140 million people voted. Participation and engagement was sky high. But the President of the United States used his platform and power to delegitimize the election, the free press, the idea of a loyal opposition, and the very country's integrity. I easily win. And it's not just Donald Trump. The top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, endorsed Trump's wild allegations and agreed that Trump actually won the election. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, the current chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, and several other senior Republicans claimed that America was witnessing a conspiracy to steal the election from President Trump. They were aided in this effort by certain Fox News anchors 
who whipped up their audiences to believe that Trump had lost only through election fraud. It may not be necessary to make this point, but let me do it anyway. As Ellen Weintraub of the Federal Election Commission said, there really has been no evidence of fraud in this election. And it's not just this election. Justin Levitt, a professor at Loyola Law School, found that out of a billion ballots cast between 2000 and 2014, there were just 31 cases of voter impersonation. Mail-in ballot fraud is equally rare. In Oregon, with more than 100 million mail-in ballots sent out since 2000, there have been only a dozen cases of proven fraud. The Conservative Heritage Foundation has tried some scaremongering, alleging almost 1,300 proven instances of voter fraud in America, without noting that this is out of more than a billion ballots cast in the last 40 years. Two Brookings scholars revealed that the number of fraud cases Heritage found in Colorado, for example, were 14 out of almost 16 million ballots cast, or approximately 0.00009%. In other words, virtually non-existent. Trump's allegations, his lawsuits, and his rhetoric might have little factual substance, but they all will have lasting consequences. They undermine faith in the American system. Trump and his Republican allies' blistering attacks are music to the ears of Russian nationalists and Chinese communists. Those people have been saying all along that American democracy is a sham. Now, the Republican Party seems to agree. But it is not true. In fact, the American system has worked, even during a pandemic, even under the tremendous pressure of a leader and his court of sycophants who have been willing to shred the norms and rules of the system for their momentary political gain. Ultimately, it didn't work. Donald Trump entered politics alleging a conspiracy, the birtherism nonsense, and he will leave the White House alleging another conspiracy. This time, it will not work. He will have to leave. But his term in office should be a reminder to Americans and really everyone around the world. Democracy is fragile. It needs to be protected. It can be eroded and undermined, not just in Belarus and Venezuela, but in the birthplace of constitutional government, the United States of America. Let's get started. World leaders have been weighing in on the election, mostly on Trump's favorite medium, Twitter. Many of America's closest allies have sent congratulations to Biden and Harris that way. And some of Trump's personal friends have even done the same. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson congratulated the winning team, said he was looking forward to working with them. Israel's Bibi Netanyahu sent a sort of two-tweet solution, one congratulating Biden and Harris without mentioning what for, the other tweet thanking the outgoing president. Meanwhile, there's been radio silence so far from China's Xi and Russia's Putin and Mexico's AMLO, who said he is waiting until any legal challenges are over. Let us check in on Europe's reaction with David Miliband, former foreign secretary of the United Kingdom, the Middle East, with Israel's former vice uh, prime minister, Zippy Livni, and the East with Australia's former prime minister, Kevin Rudd. Um, David Miliband, what is the significance, you think, in a broader sense of Donald Trump being denied 
a second term, which, as you know, is rare. I think there are two vital elements to this result, Fareed. The first is that a politician in the mold of Donald Trump, what you've called an illiberal Democrat, has been defeated at the first round. And that is significant because, as you have shown and others have documented, it's often in a second term that the greatest steps to undermine democracy take place. So there's something very significant in the defeat of President Trump. The second element, I think, is that we face an absolute crisis in the global commons at the moment in respect of the COVID health crisis, in respect of the climate crisis, in respect of the management of the global commons. We've seen a breakdown of the multilateral system. It's the last chance saloon. Now, the great sigh of relief that you're hearing from Europe, not just a sigh of relief, but the tweet of relief that you're hearing from foreign ministries and presidents and prime ministers across Europe, is that they think that in this last chance saloon, uh, President Biden, uh, President-elect, soon to be President Biden, will be a force for cooperation amongst the liberal democratic countries of the world, for management of the big global problems, which fortunately are in the social space of health and climate rather than in the security space at the moment. And also that there is a chance to reinvent the multilateral system in such a way that it can compete and cooperate with the countries like China who are providing an alternative model. Uh, Kevin, what does it look like to you in, in Asia? Uh, what, what are, you know, particularly for the Asia's democracies, for America's allies, how, are the, how, how significant is this? Well, I think, for Farid, there are two sets of responses across Asia. One from, obviously, America's uh, democratic allies in Asia, um, and the second from China. Uh, on the democratic allies, I think, as David Miliband has just said, there's almost a collective sigh of relief. Um, and the reason for that is that the Trump presidency has been seen right across Asia as being structurally um, unpredictable, uh, that in the case of the management of individual allies like the Republic of Korea, uh, it has been uh, aggressive from time to time, and that the strategy towards China has been very difficult to map for allies that alone to coordinate with. So what I sense across the democratic allies is not just a satisfaction that the American democratic institutions have worked, but for those specific foreign policy reasons, a sense of uh, relief and anticipation of an ability to work with Biden. Finally, on China. Um, China has been divided internally in their aspirations for who would win uh, the presidency on this election. The political, military and uh, intelligence establishment, I believe, were privately hoping for a Trump re-elect because they saw Trump as so divisive with uh, America's allies around the world and damaging to the democracy within America itself and therefore damaging to the brand of democracy in China. But the China's traditional diplomatic and international economic policy establishment, they welcome the opportunity of being able to re-engage with the Democrats in a new administration. Um, Zippy Lively, let me ask you about that strange reaction from Prime Minister Netanyahu first. Uh, if you can shed some light on it, he seems unable to bring himself to say the words president-elect. He doesn't congratulate Biden for actually winning the presidency. And his second tweet, congratulating or thanking uh, President Trump, was longer and warmer than his first one. Uh, what is going on with Bibi? 
I loved your uh, description of two tweets uh, solution. It took him some time to acknowledge uh, that uh, president-elect is Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, in fact, I think that he tried to find the solution in saying something or congratulating Joe Biden for the future, but yet uh, don't do something uh, or doesn't that would uh, maybe would be um, taken by President Trump as insulting or so. But in a way, it's not about Bibi. It's about, uh, it's about Israel. And uh, we have a split also in Israel because some of the Israelis are uh, appreciating what Trump uh, or appreciating Trump's contribution to the state of Israel, normalizing relations with Arab states, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, Golan Heights, uh, determination against Iran. They wanted Trump to be elected, but yet... Uh, lots of Israelis, like me, were completely worried about the global situation, about the attacks on uh, democratic values, and what what happened in the United States doesn't stay in the United States. This is what happened in Israel as well. Uh, in a way, every red line that President Trump crossed in terms of attacking democracy was a green light to Netanyahu to do so in Israel. So, uh, for... Um, part of the society in Israel, in a way, it's, it's a split. It's the same relief as was described also for me. And for others, they uh, wanted Trump to continue. Uh, Zippy, let me ask you quickly. We have a minute. Um, the Abraham Accords, obviously a diplomatic victory for Israel and for the United States. But is there some concern uh, among some people in Israel that it still does not address the Palestinian issue, or is that issue essentially, uh, you know, uh, dead from an Israeli point of view? No, it depends on who do you ask. I believe that reaching an agreement with the Palestinians or addressing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an Israeli interest. And therefore, happy uh, or being uh, uh, satisfied with normalization uh, coming with the Gulf states and Arab states, I am worried, and some of us are worried, that uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was abandoned. And uh, I hope that Biden administration would pay attention to it. Well, I'm not talking about reaching a co comprehensive peace treaty the next day, but uh, abandoning the false idea of uh, annexation and hopefully keep this road open for the future. And the Iranian issue is, is not only an Israeli concern. Uh, in a way, it's going to be quite a challenge to the new administration. Uh, but yet it was clear that also Trump was talking about renegotiating with Iran and the new administration and Biden should deal with it. And in a way, it's a kind of a litmus test in our region, the way uh, the United States would deal with, uh, with Iran. All right. Stay with us. We will have this terrific panel back to talk about China, climate change and more. And we are back looking at global reactions to the Biden-Harris victory with former top political leaders from around the world, David Miliband, Zippy Livni, and Kevin Rudd. Uh, Kevin, you are a longtime China watcher, fluent in Mandarin. Uh, give us a sense of how China as a country, uh, not the government, uh, is, is reacting. Is there, is there a lot of interest in China in this election? Well, if you look at the uh, social media data emerging out of China, Farid, 
there's something like uh, seven or eight billion um, social media uh, engagements on the US election in China just in recent days. So this, based on my own Chinese friends and contacts, suggests a really high level of uh, personal interest and engagement. Not all Chinese believe what is uh, presented to them by the People's Daily each day. Many of them have deep connections in America. But to answer your question directly, it's been right up there at the top of, uh, top of the pops as far as the Chinese public is concerned. Uh, David, what do you make of the, the future of kind of uh, Trump's politics of cultural nationalism, right-wing populism, call it what you will. You, you come out of a tradition of a kind of uh, liberal internationalism, if I, if I can put it that way. Uh, do you feel that uh, this was enough of a repudiation? Are, are we still in this battle? I think the battle goes on. Those who believe in the authoritarian populism, so-called, that President Trump represented will see the 48% vote as an endorsement, albeit one that didn't, in the end, carry the day in the presidential election. Those who are fearful that this is a curse for right-of-center politics will obviously have to figure out how to replace it. My own sense is that although the, it's tempting in the American system to point to all the ways in which President Biden will be tied down, first of all, by the Senate, then maybe by the Supreme Court, I think it's very important to recognize quite how significant the agenda-setting power of the U.S. president is, not just formally through executive orders and the like, through the foreign policy domain, but also through the bully pulpit. And I think, therefore, there is a chance for those of us who see an alternative to a, if you like, a, 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 a future that is dominated by walled fortresses, those of us who want to build an alternative to that can see an America that's ready, or an American administration that's ready to engage. And the pressing issues that we face are actually some quick wins for the Biden administration. I'm thinking, first of all, in respect of the World Health Organization and the COVID crisis, I'm thinking of joining what is a new international momentum around climate, where the Chinese commitment to net zero, the European commitment to net zero, the Japanese commitment, all within the last two months to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, 2060. Those are significant uh, commitments that I think America can add its voice and its resources to. So in that sense, I think there is a chance. This is a moment of possibility, as President-elect Biden said last night. And I think we shouldn't be uh, obsessed with the idea that Gulliver will be tied down by the Lilliputians. I think there is a chance to fashion something different. Zippy Livni, how much do personalities matter? You've known Joe Biden personally for 20 years or more, yes. maybe. How, what, what would describe how you think, you know, what kind of a person is he from your, from your perspective as an international player? I believe that the free world needs now a mensch as the leader of the free world. And I believe that the message coming out of these elections and the results of the elections is that character matters, truth matters. And if I take what uh, President-elect Biden said yesterday about healing uh, America, healing the United States, uh, my advice, or, or maybe this is time now for the leader of the free world to heal the world. And I believe that uh, Joe Biden, his personality is exactly what the free world uh, needs now, uh, because uh, the message coming until this election from the United States was quite problematic, 
in terms of the values that we believe, and Biden represents uh, the values of liberal uh, uh, and liberalism and, and uh, democracy as, as the free world needs. Kevin, I, I want to ask you about the, the, the health of democracy uh, and what role the media can play to, to bolster it and to destroy it. And the reason I ask this, I noticed you've, you are trying to uh, take some measures in Australia to, I think, uh, in, in your words, make sure that Rupert Murdoch cannot do to Australia's political culture what his media organizations have done to America's political culture. Explain what you mean. Well, Fareed, in your introductory remarks uh, to our program today, uh, you spoke um, quite specifically about uh, how the evolution of the American democracy is seen both in Moscow and Beijing. Um, and frankly, um, if the democracy fails or falters in the United States, it is of fundamental importance to the rest of the world in terms of the long-term health of the liberal democratic project. Now, in Australia, uh, unlike in the United States, um, uh, Murdoch owns 70% of the print media in Australia. In my own home state of Queensland, 100% of the print media. And so when I look at uh, Fox uh, as uh, in the United States, I do fear that that is his long-term trajectory uh, in terms of what he wants to do in my own democracy in Australia. We've seen evidence of that in the United Kingdom. I doubt very much there would have been Brexit in the absence of um, Murdoch's campaigning uh, through his campaigning newspapers there. The bottom line is the lifeblood of our democracies uh, depends on a fair, balanced, independent, free media, which separates out two things, the reporting of facts and the expression of opinion. And with the Murdoch media empire, we've seen the conflation of these two things for so long. And that's why we've seen so many people, hundreds of thousands of people, sign petitions in Australia demanding a royal commission into the future of the Murdoch monopoly in this country. What America does on that, it's a matter for America. What the UK does on that, it's a matter for the UK. But when I look at Fox and its central role in this presidential election campaign, effectively as an arm of the Republican Party, I don't think it's been good for the overall democratic project. We have to leave it there. We will get back with uh, all of you. A fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Next on GPS, America is deeply divided. Why? What will bring it back together? Ezra Klein and David French join me in a moment. According to the count thus far, just over 50% of Americans voted for Joe Biden for president and about 48% of the country voted for Donald Trump. This is a divided nation. Ezra Klein and David French are here to help us understand what divides us and what might unite us. Klein is the founder and editor-at-large at Vox. He is the author of Why We're Polarized. French is a senior editor at The Dispatch and a columnist for Time. He is the author of Divided We Fall. Um, Ezra, if looking at this election, if somebody would ask you the question, uh, an American would ask you very simply, why are we so polarized? What is the answer? We're polarized because we disagree. Let me put this in a slightly different way in terms of parties. What has happened in American politics that has made us polarized in the way that it functions in our, com in our common conversation isn't that we've become more deeply in disagreement with each other. It's a, that disagreement has become better sorted between the parties. If you go back 30 or 40 or 50 years, 
You have liberal Republicans like George Romney. You have conservative Democrats, the whole Dixiecrat coalition within the Democratic Party. And that creates a an incentive and a capacity for cross-party governance that we don't have right now. So I'm not really concerned about American disagreement. There are kinds of disagreement that are toxic and kinds that are constructive. Oftentimes, we need to be able to disagree. What I'm worried about is the inability to govern amidst disagreement because the parties don't have a strong incentive. And in particular, here, the Republican Party does not show a strong desire to cooperate. So if you have a Joe Biden uh, presidency and a Mitch McConnell Senate, I'm really quite worried that on key things that we need to make progress on, nothing is going to get done. Um, David, there are a lot of people who say that it's not an equal phenomenon. Uh, you know, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann at Brookings have sort of actually studied it and said, look, what has happened is the Democratic Party has moved slightly left, the Republican Party has moved way right, and more importantly, has become, you know, really post-Newt Gingrich, deeply uncompromising and antagonistic toward the opposition party. Do you do you share that or do you have a different way of looking at it? Well, you know, if you if you listen to folks on the right, they would say exactly the opposite, uh, that the that the left has moved very far to the left, that ideas like defund the police that were not even really on anyone's radar screen, even recently became part of the mainstream conversation. So what you have really here is you have competing narratives of grievance that say, okay, well, our, our side has a problem, but your side has the real problem. And so to build on what Ezra just said, what we have is disagreement, which our system is built to handle, supposedly, but it's, it is disagreement enhanced by an enormous sense of grievance that is then, especially on the right, nursed and, and, and cultivated by a right-wing entertainment media complex and this grievance builds deep animosity so that we're now in this grips of this in, in the grips of negative polarization where negative partisanship where I'm not let's say if I'm a Republican, I'm not a Republican because I love the Republican Party so much as I really dislike the Democrats. And so the main virtue a Republican candidate has is that he's not the other guy. And I, I think that what we saw with Trump is that that was really ramped up and put on steroids. And as far as relative fault, I think any time one side has the most powerful man in the world on its side and the most powerful man in the world is dedicated to cruelty as a tactic, that's going to adjust the balance of equities for a time. But it remains to be seen sort of what the Republican Party looks like post-Trump. Well, we will get to that, but I want to keep on this polarization point and ask you, Ezra, you make a very compelling case, as you just did and in, in your book, that it used to be that there were these polarizations within parties, you know, northern liberals and, and southern segregationists were both in the Democratic Party and had to find a way to work together. And now it's sort of divided and weaponized. But isn't there also a kind of deep cultural and class division that has developed? I mean, if you look at the coalitions, you know, the Democratic Party is college-educated whites, um, um, you know, and then the multicultural coalition. The, the Republican coalition is less educated, rural whites. Those cultural class uh, uh, polarizations, it feels layers upon layers. So you almost have one country but two nations. Yes, how long do we have? So the, <laughs> the, the trick of this is that as the parties polarized ideologically, what that created was a signal inside the entire rest of the system about what kind of people fit in which party. So the beginning of this story is the Civil Rights Act, the, um, 
the, the parties polarized much more around race and around racial liberalism. If you look at mid-century American politics, in order to measure ideology correctly, you have to include a separate dimension for race because race splits the two parties internally, not just externally. So the Civil Rights Act begins a long process of resorting where the Southern conservative and racially resentful bloc, um, and often just racist bloc, moves into the Republican Party. The Democratic Party, which had that bloc, right, has a terrible record on race in that period, um, begins to become the party more of racial liberalism. But as that happens, then everything begins to polarize. Uh, so a, a big one, and one that is very, very much driving a lot of our politics right now, is density. You do not have a density in this country, a, des a dense county in this country that votes Republican. Rural areas are overwhelmingly Republican. And because our political system is built to amplify the power of sparsely populated areas, of rural areas, particularly in the Senate, but not only, um, that gives the Republican Party uh, a decided advantage within our electoral system the Democratic Party has to, has to uh, overcome. There's much more religious polarization now, which David can talk about, I think, even more eloquently than I can. Uh, but it used to be the case that the parties were similar on religion. And now the Democratic Party's single largest religious group is religiously unaffiliated. Republicans, of course, are overwhelmingly Christian. As the parties become more different types, right, people are much more tuned to understand demographic difference, cultural difference. They see that more clearly, more easily than ideological difference. We can have a lot of debates, positive some debates about how healthcare policy should work. But when it becomes this party is for people like me and this other party doesn't seem to be for people like me, then we're able to feel those stakes on an intuitive, visceral level, a, a level of respect and dignity and fear. And that's when politics gets really hot. That's always what Donald Trump was good at working with, um, or good to some extent, at least at working with. It's something Joe Biden does not want to work with. So if you want to hear my sort of optimistic case, it's not on governance, but it is a little bit on temperature. I don't think Biden wants to inflame those passions. And I think it matters that he'll try not to. All right. Uh, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit about the Republican Party. I want to ask David French about the future of his party or the party that was once his. And we are back with Ezra Klein and David French. Uh, David, what is the future of the Republican Party now? I, and I wanted you to answer this specific question, which is I, I see lots of kind of interesting projects. Some people like Paul Ryan want to return it to its more economic libertarian uh, roots. Uh, others want it to be more of the kind of compassionate conservatism that George W. Bush talked about. But these are all think tankers in Washington. Down there where people actually vote, they seem, seem to love Trump and they love what Trump stands for. How are you going to solve that problem? Yeah, I, I live in the middle of a deep red uh, precinct in a deep red state that voted Trump. And but I'm going to say this, having talked to friends and neighbors and family members about Trump for years now, it's up for grabs. I mean, it really is up for grabs. First, because Trumpism wasn't a coherent political ideology. It was all over the place. His biggest legislative accomplishment was a Paul Ryan engineered tax cut. His biggest executive accomplishment was pushing through a bunch of Supreme Court, or a bunch of Supreme Court and lower court justices who were not like Pam Bondi or Judge Jeanine, but sort of buttoned down classical liberals. At the same time, he had a populist trade war with China that didn't go so well, and he didn't get America out of any foreign wars. So there was no coherent Trumpism ideology. There was definitely a coherent Trumpism uh, ethic and a definite Trumpism temperament. And that temperament did drive a lot of Republican enthusiasm, but it also drove more Democratic opposition. So yeah, 71 million people went out to vote for him. But when it's all said and done, probably more than 75, more than 76, 77 million will have voted against him. 
And so it doesn't, you don't have the temperament argument solidly in his favor. We don't know what his ideology is. And historically, the Republican Party has not put both arms around people who lose races. So a lot of it is going to depend not so much on party officials, but this vast conservative media entertainment complex, which really touches people in their homes every night. Watch what they do. Are they going to continue to wrap both arms around Trump? If they do, then the battle against Trumpism from the in, within this you know, conservative world is going to be tough. If they start to distance from Trump, then all bets are off. This thing could go very differently in the Republican Party, at the very least at a temperamental ethical, from a temperamental ethical standpoint, could return back to historical norms. But standing where I am today, I honestly can't tell you how this is going to end up. Ezra, add one thing to that, uh, uh, yeah, Breed. Sure. So one thing that we, we tend to talk about these elections and issues in terms of polarization. But one thing that I think is embedded there in David's answer is that I think we do need to think a little bit about democratization, too. Parties, particularly polarized parties, because they're so afraid of the other side winning, they do respond to incentives. And I think that the fundamental or at least a driving problem for the Republican Party right now in this country is that it has become detached from the need to win majorities of popular vote in order to win power. So it's going to hold the Senate, but it did not win anywhere near uh, a majority of Senate votes. In fact, if they hold the Senate and win both Georgia runoffs, Republicans will represent 20 million fewer people than the Democratic minority. Um, Donald Trump, it will be reasonably close in the Electoral College in the sense that a couple hundred thousand votes could have tipped it, um, making it uh, the case that Republicans would have won three of six presidential elections since 2000 with a minority of the vote. And that is getting bigger and worse. Uh, you're going to have Republican control over redistricting um, from this decennial census we're just, uh, we just had, and that'll make the Electoral College popular vote divergence even bigger. So one of the things that worries me a lot about the system is that I think the Republican Party, if it had to win majorities, it would, and it would reform because Republicans don't want to lose. But so long as they can be on this path where they win or come very, very, very close to winning by winning minorities of the vote, a sort of uh, version of minority rule, you get into some real trouble because you don't have the disciplining incentives of democracy. Democrats didn't all love Joe Biden, but they thought Joe Biden would appeal to people who weren't just like the Democratic base. Republicans haven't been forced to make a lot of those same decisions. And, and, and I think that has to be understood as a core perverse incentive in the system now. Um, those folks David's talking about, they'll vote for other people if the other people are the ones who can win. Um, but so long as they're protected from some of those uh, that disciplining mechanism of democracy, they don't have to make those very difficult reforms. Uh, David, how would you respond to that? I mean, it is true seven of the last eight elections, the Democrat has won a majority of the vote. And in, I think it's fair to say any other advanced democracy, that would be the end of the story. If you won 50 plus one, you, you won. Well, you know, I think a lot of Republicans would listen to what Ezra just said and say, well, actually, the system is working the way it was intended and this is the the system was not designed for majorities to swamp minorities and they dismiss it and i think they dismiss it wrongly because it's inherently destabilizing when over a long period of time i'm talking i'm not talking about one election out of 10 or one election out of 20 but when it becomes a consistent pattern of not just minorities ability to check majority power which is real the intent here but the minority rule over the majority. I think that that is destabilizing over time. And I think it's also just unsustainable over time is if the Republican minority continues to shrink as it obviously did 
in this election. But we kind of have an irresistible force meets an immovable object problem in the sense that if the minority sees these institutions, such as the Senate and the Electoral College, as the only way to ensure their access to power, they're going to cling more tightly to them. The ability to reform them is going to be is going to diminish as they grow in importance to the minority's ability to have a voice. So you're going to have a real problem reforming that. The path of least resistance is for the Democrats, say, to run candidates who are more likely to win, say, Georgia in the Senate, where they just, it looks like, pending recounts have won Georgia for the presidency. They've done very well in running candidates who can win, for example, the traditionally red state of Arizona. Uh, the problem with that, I think, from a Democratic perspective, and Ezra can correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you run sort of the Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin and West Virginia style candidates, you often can't get the kinds of reforms that, you, that the progressive majority would want to get through. Uh, but I don't I don't see a practical way around that. There's going to have to be an effort to work within the system because the minority that clings to it is going to cling to it so tenaciously that I don't see that it will reform and this tension will continue to exist and continue to be destabilizing. Uh, Ezra, you have 30 seconds. Is there is there some positive note you can end us on, which is how do we get over this polarization? I'm not going to say we can get over it, but I will say that if I'm, if I'm trying to paint a positive picture and assuming a, a, a version of divided governance, I do think there is an outside chance five or six Senate Republicans do not want politics to feel like this anymore and that they would want to work enough with Joe Biden to prove the system can work differently than it has been. I do not want to I would not bet a lot of money on this. I um, am not unbelievably optimistic about it, but I don't think it is impossible that Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and a couple other folks would like to have as their legacy a different kind of politics than the one we have seen and that Joe Biden is the right partner for them if they decide to do that and that he is the person most likely to get that part of them to the forefront. Um, Ezra Klein. uh, Not my prediction, (laughs) but my hope. Ezra Klein, David French, the real pleasure. And we will be back. Now for the last look. Joe Biden's narrow victory has left Democrats wondering whether he would have won at all if not for a virus that tanked the economy and killed more than 230,000 Americans in an election year. But a Bloomberg analysis found that in the counties hit hardest by COVID-19, Trump actually improved on his 2016 performance far more than in the average county. Now, this was a partial and preliminary analysis, but it's clear that at the very least, the pandemic did not hurt Trump as much as expected. Why might that be? Well, first, as Annie Lowry points out in The Atlantic, it seems many voters saw the pandemic as a fluke rather than Trump's fault. Second, Joe Biden demonstrated greater empathy towards those Americans with a newly empty chair at the kitchen table. But frankly, that is a tiny fraction of the country. As James Palmer of Foreign Policy noted, when Trump railed against lockdowns and called for reopening the economy, that was a message with potential appeal to just about everyone. Ironically, whereas Biden and Obama were the hope candidates in 2008, Trump became the hope candidate in this election in a sense. Biden warned of a dark winter ahead with 200,000 more COVID deaths. Trump projected a sunny confidence about the country rounding the corner and the economy roaring back. That optimism may have been particularly appealing in hard-hit counties. Unfortunately for Trump, it wasn't enough to push him over the edge. 
and unfortunately for the country, his optimism was unfounded. Coronavirus cases are surging to record highs as the country enters a dark winter indeed. The pandemic is real, as are its impacts. And for more on that, I want to remind you about my new book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. I hope you will buy it. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.